Hey guys, uh, Lifeway recently conducted a survey that I thought yielded some pretty interesting results. It found that there is quite the gap between the number of churchgoers who say they want to serve in their communities and those who actually do. So to paint a picture of how big that gap actually is, whereas more than 80% of churchgoers say they want to serve, only 30% have actually served anywhere in the last year. So while I don't doubt that um, some of our listeners fall into that gap, please know that the aim of today's conversation is not to guilt you. Well, maybe just a little bit, but in all seriousness, seriousness, I wanted to talk to you about this, Jim, because I know a lot of people listening to our podcast are involved in their churches. We have a lot of ministry leaders um, listening or people who are involved in, you know, um, um, nonprofit organizations or Christian organizations who rely on volunteers. And they are asking themselves, why? You know, if people say they want to serve, why are they not showing up? Because the Lifeway survey doesn't give us the answers, so I'm hoping that maybe you can give us those answers. <laughs> um, but first, and again, you'll have to forgive the skeptic in me. I feel like I say that on every episode. Like I am the, the glass half empty person <laughs> between the two of us. But I guess my question is, do you really think that that high of a percentage of people really do want to serve? Or do you think that they want to want to serve? In other words, should those who are seeking volunteers, should they begin with cultivating a desire to serve? Or are they correct to assume that everybody does want to serve? Most people do. They just need help in overcoming the barriers that get in their way. I do think the question the survey asked was a bit flawed. Um, Asking someone if they want to serve or are willing to serve is like asking someone if they want to love people or are you willing to love people? Right. Uh, or if they like baseball and hate communism, <laughs> uh, no one is going to say no. Right. Uh, which makes me really quest- curious about the 20% <laughs> who did. But I don't give a flip about it. Um, but I've never met anyone who would say, you know what? I want to be permanently on the sidelines. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't want anyone to remember me or remember anything I have done after I'm gone. In fact, I want to live in such a way that they don't. Uh, I want to leave the world in a worse condition than before I lived. I, I, I don't want to have any chances to make it better. I enjoy seeing needs go unmet and people in crisis left to languish and children hungry and those in poverty permanently homeless. I enjoy being able to do something for God and then purposefully choosing not to do it. Nobody says those kinds of things. We want to serve. We want to make a difference, which means that the key, which you mentioned, is cultivating the drive and determination to act on the desire. Let's imagine someone who wants to get in shape and lose weight. Uh, They genuinely want to do that. So why don't they? Well, there's obviously a lack of drive and a lack of determination, Uh, not a lack of desire. It's drive, determination. I remember my grandfather once saying uh, that it was no secret how to lose weight. He said, yeah, to either eat less or work more. Simple as that. And he was right. So why don't we? Desire isn't enough. Determination has to kick in. So we have to do both of the things that you mentioned and then add a third. First, we have to fan into a flame the desire. And then second, we have to remove any and all barriers that might exist in someone's mind about the feasibility of serving. And then third, we have to ensure that there's determination. And I think that the determination to serve comes from commitment, just from raw conviction, from a sense that this is the right, good, true, noble thing to do. I'll never forget Tom Landry, the legendary Hall of Fame coach of the Dallas Cowboys, 
summing up what he did as a coach. And I remember when I read it, I thought this is brilliant. Uh, he said, he said, here's my job. My job is to get a group of men to do what they don't want to do so that they can achieve the one thing they've wanted all their lives. That's profound. Yeah. That was insightful. Mm -hmm. Okay. So let's talk about why people aren't serving anywhere. And again, I'm, I am, I do mean anywhere because this isn't just about serving at your church or not. What is clearly not a reason is that their church isn't encouraging them to do so. In fact, I did think it was interesting that 84% of the respondents said that their churches do encourage them to serve and to serve outside of their church and to serve with the hopes of, of sharing the gospel with other people. So the encouragement is there. So again, let's talk about why the follow-up is not. Because they need to get off their butt. <laughs> and I don't mean the actual butt of their lives. I mean the butt of... Um, excuses, mm. you know, the butt of our fears. What if I fail? The butt of our insecurities. What if I'm not good enough? The butt of our ignorance. You know, what if I don't know where or how or, or the butt of our own self-assessment where we say, but I don't have anything really to offer. The butts of our excuses. I don't have time. We've got a lot of butts to get off of. That we did an entire series on this where we played off that and we called it Get Off Your Butts mm -hmm. that we'll link to in the show notes. And, uh, let me give you some of the ones that we walked through so you can get a taste of what I think is really behind some of the reasons why we don't do this. Uh, first is a big one is someone who says, but I don't have time, but I don't have the time. I have a desire to serve. I'd love to serve, but I just don't have the time. And they would say, listen, look at me. I, I, I work full time. I got a wife. I've got kids. There's soccer games. There is yard work. Uh, if I have an extra hour or two, I really need it for me. Um, or they might say, listen, I did my part. I mean, I, I paid my dues. My, my season is over. Uh, let somebody else do the heavy lifting. Let those young people do it. Mm. Or I'm going to serve, just not now. I need to wait till I am older. You know, the opposite idea for when this season is over, when the kids are in diapers, I, uh, or I need to wait for that season when we're done with sports, or I need to wait for that season when they're out of school, or I got to wait for that season when I finally finish putting them through college or the season after I retire. There are a lot of seasons. Mm -hmm. Actually, you never run out of them. Uh, so that's that's the first big but. A second one is, but I don't know what I should do uh, or where I should serve. And meaning they've never really gotten in touch with their spiritual gifts or their shape, which is bigger than spiritual gifts. You know, it's spiritual gifts. It's their it's their passions. It's their abilities. It's their personality type. Um, there's another but that we I remember us talking about that. We don't tend to vocalize, but we try to expose a lot, at least around here. And that is, but I'm all about me. <laughs> uh, and it sounds awful to say that, doesn't it? Mm -hmm. I'm all about me. That's why I don't serve. Uh, but that's why we never vocalize it, because it does sound so terrible. It's so self-centered and selfish and prideful. But we think it and we feel it and we live by it. And at least I often think it and feel it and live by it. In fact, if I'm brutally honest, it's my default mode. It's the butt I tend to sit on the most. It's it's the one left to myself, you know, where I would naturally land. Which is why it shouldn't surprise me or anyone else that that's the butt Jesus went after the most. Mm -hmm. um, the one he had to go after the most in order to get people to experience a life that they were called to live. Uh, the greatness that only comes through serving. The differences that can be made. The legacy that is created. The life change that happens when we embrace the life of Jesus who did not come, as he said, to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. 
there's another but. I remember we, we talked about the butt of optics, you know, but it looks like everything is covered. Right. Um, they come to church. So let's just use church as an example. It could be for any number of places that are volunteer driven. Um, they come to church every week and they see people parking cars and taking care of kids and leading worship. And it's all cared for wonderfully. There's teachers leading classes and so on and so forth. And this drives this drives every church leader crazy. Mm-hmm. I mean, you want to you want to drive them crazy. This tell them, well, it looks like you got it all covered. Because they know how every ministry, every service, every serve day, every outreach effort, every everything uh, was stitched together with paling wire and duct tape with desperate prayers for enough volunteers. And it came through by the skin of its teeth. And then there were many times it didn't. Uh, And then we closed out the series. and there may have been others we talked about. I don't know. We'll link to, again in the show notes to it if people want to explore it. But I, I do remember um, we talked about, I think the last one was, but what difference will it make? Yeah. Uh, and I think everybody's thought that and felt that kind of a why bother mentality when it comes to doing something. You know, what difference really will my giving make? Uh, what difference will what I do make? What will my hour of serving what difference will that really make? What difference will my showing up uh, to help make? Um, what's one person more? You know, what's mm-hmm. one person less? And um, so whatever I do or don't do, whatever I give or don't give, what difference does it really make? And when you sit on that butt, uh, here's what happens. You don't serve and you don't care that you don't serve uh, because in your mind, it doesn't matter. There is no urgency to begin with. So it's not like you're the problem because you don't see yourself as the solution. Uh, your money, your time, your service, your involvement, your participation, your volunteering, your gifts, your abilities, and your mind, it just won't move the needle. So why bother? So you don't bother. Uh, because you're sitting on the butt that says, but what difference will it make? Which is really one of the, one of the things that I, I, I understand is, is my responsibility as a leader, is to make sure that that people know exactly what difference it makes mm. and to cast that vision. And um, I, uh, you know, a lot of times when I'm, if, if I'm not teaching or if I, the service is structured where I have, I'm able to kind of break away. I love to walk around Mac, you know, and stick my head in doors and talk to people. And like, I'll, I'll go into a, a children's classroom and I'll see somebody in there, you know, changing a diaper or some guy rocking a baby in a chair and, and, and I say, you know what, what you're doing matters so much. You're not just changing a diaper. You're not just rocking a baby. What you're doing is you're freeing up a family. You're freeing up a husband, a wife, maybe a single parent mom to be in there where they are hearing how Christ can intersect the deepest needs of their life. And if you weren't here doing this, they wouldn't be in there hearing it. Mm-hmm. And if that day and time comes where they choose to accept Christ and they cross that line of faith and they emerge from the waters of baptism, it'll be your name in heaven that has, you know, credit for this. So you're not just watching a child. You're changing an eternity in a family. And don't you forget it. And I love just going around to anybody doing almost anything and saying, look, let's, let's make sure that you understand what you're doing because it matters. Yeah. And I also wonder, though, even if we take that 
that thought even one step further and just say that it not only matters if you do, but it also matters if you don't. And I guess like where I'm going here is the, the Lifeway survey, it, it also found that there's that same gap of between intention and action um, with regards to evangelism, that we want to share our faith, but we don't do it. And I think that with both serving and evangelism, I think that part of the problem is that we see both of those maybe if we don't do them as just an opportunity missed with maybe not realizing that there are actually consequences of our inaction as well. Is that, would you say that there's room to, for that thinking too? Yes. Uh, yes. But let's dig into this one. Um, Cause you brought up the E word and that's like dangling red meat in front of you. <laughs> um, there are so many reasons why evangelism is harder to get people to engage, maybe even more than stewardship. It's often said the last thing to get converted is someone's wallet. Mm -hmm. I think the last thing to get converted is their heart for their unchurched friends. And even if it's not the first thing to get, the last thing to get converted, it's the first thing to get unconverted. Yeah. Like they may be hot for their friends at first, and then it cools off faster than any other aspect of Christian life. The longer they walk with Christ, the less their heart beats for the unchurched, which is so deeply ironic. Mm -hmm. um, and it's a flawed breakdown in authentic discipleship that the longer we have them in church, the longer they're discipled, the, 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 the weaker their flame and their heartbeat for the lost gets. Mm. That's, that's a broken discipleship. Yeah. Well, if anything, their heart for the lost should be getting more and more inflamed. Um, and I think one of the reasons is, is that we often can make discipleship all about us and God instead of us, God, and others, or us, God, and the world. Uh, we're not just discipling people. Um, we just aren't discipling people for the mission. Yeah, I mean, you've heard me talk about this a thousand times. What is the target on the wall? We're not just discipling people so they can get spiritually fat and they can just have their 15th Beth Moore study. I love Beth Moore. <laughs> but it, it's it's we're discipling people for mission. Yeah. To do something with their lives. And if we're going to disciple people for the Jesus life, that means discipling them for the Jesus mission. Mm -hmm. uh, but to your point, yes, we don't understand the consequences of our inaction. We hide behind not knowing what to say. For example, with evangelism, we hide behind... Well, I don't know what to say. I don't know how to answer questions. I don't want to offend. I, I want to avoid awkwardness. But we need to remember, these people are in trouble. Mm -hmm. uh, heaven and hell are real, and real people go there. Mm -hmm. And I know we don't like to think about hell. We don't like to talk about hell. But if hell is real, how much, how much would you have to hate someone not to talk to them about it? Uh, how much would I have to hate you? believing in the core of my being that heaven and hell are real places and real people go there to, to how much would I have to hate you to not, to, to not try and keep you out of it? Mm -hmm. uh, that would be off the charts. Hate. Uh, when Jesus talked about hell, he wasn't trying to beat people up with it. He was, he, or, you know, to tell everybody that they were going to go there because they were bad people. Jesus talked about hell to try to rescue people, yeah. to try to keep people out of it. I've always been taken by the story Jesus told of, the rich man and, and Lazarus, how five minutes in hell turned this guy into a flaming evangelist. <laughs> you know, um, and, and how in Luke 15, um, when the, you know, because he wanted, man, I've, I've been here five minutes. Nobody wants to go there. We got to go tell everybody not to come here. And now in Luke 15, when the Pharisees and the teachers of the law critique Jesus for welcoming uh, sinners and, and eating with them, Jesus was so upset that they didn't get what the heart of the Father was about, so upset that they didn't understand uh, the truth and spiritual reality of these dear people's lives, that he told not one, not two, but three straight stories to rapid-fire truth into their lives and set them straight. He was that upset. Mm. And if you're a Bible trivia nut, that's the 
only time in all of recorded scripture that Jesus was so exercised that he told three straight stories to make one point toward one group of people. And of course, as you know, is the story of the lost sheep, the lost coin, and the prodigal son. All three stories, something of great value lost, all three situations warranted an all-out search to find it. And, you know, if, if you need the last 5% about the passion of Jesus on this, remember the scene of his crucifixion. Mm. What was he doing during those last agonizing moments with life and blood draining from his body? He was working to try and save one more. Yeah. Even then. The driving force, the ultimate reality of Jesus' life was that he was sent on a mission, and that mission was singular in focus. It was to those who were far from God, because he knew something more clearly than anyone else who had ever lived or ever would, that heaven and hell are real, hmm. and real people go to one or the other. Um, you know, but, and you, know, the, you talk about the consequences of action and inaction. I remember a simple story I read once. Ken Geyer had it in one of his books. It was about a man named Scott Manley and how it impacted his life. Uh, Scott was reached out to high school students on the campus of Arlington Heights High School back in the 1960s. And Ken writes that he would just show up in a pair of, you know, Converse All-Stars and some gym shorts and a T-shirt and handshake and a smile. And he was a seminary student who was working with the ministry to reach out to high school kids. And Ken writes about how over the years or the weeks, I'm sorry, he kept he kept showing up to um, try to reach out to these kids at lunch and after school and in the parking lot and just kind of worked his way into their lives. And Ken said he doesn't remember any of his talks. He just remembers the music of his message. You know, I love you. I care about you. I, I, you matter. Your pain matters. Your, your struggles matter. Your life is sacred and, and dear to God. Um, you know, he has a future for you, plans for you, hopes and dreams for you, blessings for you. And that, that music streamed into Ken's heart, and Ken became a Christian, mm. going on to Texas Christian University, where he also began working with high school students. Um, and on the leadership team there was a young woman named Judy, who would one day become Ken's wife. Judy had become a Christian through a classmate, who had become a Christian through a ministry to high school students, who themselves had become a Christian through Scott Manley. Interesting. Same guy. Mm. One day, Ken and Judy, the story goes that they ran into Scott at a conference that they were all attending together and along with three of their of their four children and judy who had never met scott walked up to him and said you don't know me but i'm judy geyer i'm ken geyer's wife and he, she gave him a big hug and then she went on she says there's something i've been wanting to tell you for a long time um scott you were instrumental in leading my husband to christ you led my high school youth group leader to christ who led a friend of mine to Christ. And that friend led me to Christ. You are my spiritual heritage. Here are three of our four children. This is Kelly. She knows Jesus. This is Rachel. She knows Jesus. Uh, this is Stephen. He knows Jesus. And Gretchen, our oldest, isn't here, but she knows Jesus. All of us know Jesus because of Scott Manley. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. And Scott threw his arms around her. And for a long time, they just wept together. Mm. That's a legacy. That's beautiful. Yeah. Well, another Scott, Scott McConnell, who is the, the executive director of Lifeway Research, uh, he made an interesting remark in response to the results of the survey. Um, he said, yeah, I'm quoting him here, but he said, most widespread needs in communities require volunteers working together, something that majority of churchgoers don't do over the course of a year. When I read that, it just simply reminded me of 
I guess I would just say like the growing loss of communal participation in the church. But I'm curious, like, how does that comment land for you? Yeah, you know, the idea of coming together mm-hmm. to accomplish more together than we could apart is rapidly becoming a fading idea and a fading ideal. I mean, think about it. And if Satan was going to attack the church and its mission, how would he do it? I've often argued that I think everything rises and falls on unity. He's going to attack unity. Jesus said in his high priestly prayer in John 17 that, that you know the world will know I am from the Father. The, the, ver- the validation of everything I'm about is if you guys love each other, if you guys maintain unity. Um, and um, that's because that's what's going to arrest the world's attention. But unity goes beyond just relational unity. It speaks to the power of coming together, the power that flows out of being unified, uh, the synergy of unity. Synergy is that energy or force that is generated um, through the working together of various forces and parts or processes. It goes back, at least in my thinking, to the classic economics text of Adam Smith, The Wealth of Nations. Um, I remember he had an illustration in there that uh, 10 people working individually can produce 20 pins a day, but 10 people working together can produce 48,000 pins a day. Satan wants to keep that kind of synergy, that kind of power out of the church because it terrifies him. There's obviously no easy solution for this or else it wouldn't be such a prevalent problem, but how much of the solution is in the hands of the individual Christians and how much of it should the church own? Oh, I think it's both. Mm-hmm. Obviously both. The, the Christians should get off their many butts that we've talked about. The church should teach, and it often doesn't, on spiritual gifts mm-hmm. and the importance of serving and having a serving attitude. And, and, and since I've already talked about the butts, let's, let's talk about the church. Let's talk about, let's, let's go ahead and turn about be fair play. I'll never forget hearing one person describe how pastors often go about it, how it, how it usually goes. And, and the, the pastor, we'll call him Bob, uh, had just received his annual flood of resignations. Sunday school teachers, nursery workers, ushers, youth workers, they all want it out. Uh, but Pastor Bob isn't really surprised. It happens every year. <laughs> some offer lengthy explanations. Some just say they've done their part. Now, Pastor Bob knows that the ministries of the church can't keep going unless somebody fills these positions. So he gears up for his annual recruitment campaign. Uh, but not only is Pastor Bob gearing up for his annual recruitment campaign, so are the members of his church. They know that Pastor Bob is going to be coming after them to serve, and they're already thinking up all the ways they're going to resist his advances. John, a deacon, says to himself, he's not going to get me this year. <laughs> not going to do it. So help me. I don't care what he preaches on. I don't care how often he threatens God's judgment. I'm not even going to cave in if he starts to cry. Three years ago, he cried. And I ended up a center aisle usher. And I don't even like people. <laughs> this year, I'm going to resist to the end. But Pastor Bob knows it'll be tough. So this year, he's bringing in the heavy artillery. Uh, he's... he's, he's um, uh, planning a four-part series. He's going to call it Serve or Burn. <laughs> Every sermon will begin with an illustration from Fox's Book of Martyrs. He's already decided to wear a lapel microphone so that he can walk the length of the stage and raise his voice and perspire a little bit and wave his Bible in the air. And then on the fourth week, he'll bring out his secret weapon, seven-year-old Susie Miller. Oh, yeah. 
Mm-hmm. He'll take Susie on his lap before the entire church and ask her what it's going to be like to spend a whole year in the second grade school class without a teacher. He hopes she'll cry. If she does, he'll win the war hands down. Well, Pastors Bob, his strategy works. The server burn series goes better than expected. Little Susie cries on cue. People feel worn down and guilty. By September 1st, the empty positions are filled for another year. Okay, that's not the way it's supposed to be, much less what this is about. Instead, we're to have a servant's heart and we're to follow that heart with our servant shape, meaning our spiritual gifts and passions, abilities, and personality types. Pastors and leaders shouldn't be trying to just fill notches. They should be trying to help people reach their full redemptive potential, discover who God made them to be and where they can go and just make a disproportionate influence for the kingdom and bear fruit to equip them for amazing influence and lives of influence and to be setting it all up to where you've got leaders leading and singers singing and counselors, counselors and teachers teaching. And you're, you've got it, you're building it around this. That's the way it's supposed to be. I love that you, I don't know. I hope I'm not, I, I'll just say it. I, I think that you're, that what you said was so insightful because I do feel like so often those of us who work in ministry can get this complex where we think it matters where I'm serving. I need to be working in a place that complements my giftings, my shape. And yet when it comes to volunteers, we can think, I just need a warm body here. And I think that that, I mean, a volunteer feels that way. They feel when they are just treated like a warm body instead of, I really am passionate about helping you to serve where you are gifted and where God would call you to serve, not just where I have a need for serving. And so I guess on that note, I know we have a lot of listeners who do serve. Um, and as volunteers, it can some they can sometimes feel overlooked or unappreciated or just like warm bodies sometimes. So would you just close perhaps with a word for them? This is the second time you've hung out red meat. (laughs) (laughs) Evangelism and now appreciating volunteers and their servants. And and, and I I was hoping you would ask me this. Mm. And so I actually came prepped wanting to speak to this in a very specific way. Mm. I brought a printed out email with me that I once received. It's one of those emails you save. It's from a single parent mom. Mm. And so let me just read it. Dear Pastor Jim, your message this weekend really got to me. There really is so much community care going on at MAC that really does go unmentioned or unnoticed. I feel prompted to let you know what a gift the family at MAC is giving both my son and me. As you may or may not know, my son's father places him at the bottom of his list of priorities and his involvement with my son is minimal to non-existent. This weekend, my son finally vocalized that he knows his father does not treat him the way a father should. His journal entry at school summed it all up and touched his teacher's heart. He wrote, my father hates me and does not want to be a part of his family or my life. That's okay because God is my real daddy and he loves me. He gave me John, Billy, Jonathan, and Michael to make sure I am okay. And let me hit the pause button. John, Billy, Jonathan, and Michael are four men in our church who were faithfully serving almost every weekend and met kids in that kid's age group. Mm. Then the mother writes, that speaks volumes about what met kids has taught my seven-year-old during the past three years. 
What a gift. And then she adds, as a single mom, there are things I just cannot do for my son. It is just so overwhelming to know that there are men in the church who will step up and help out in the areas someone like me needs it. Please know how thankful I am. Four men, one hour a week, change the entire trajectory of a young boy's life at seven years old. You have no idea, you know, what that kid is going to be doing at 17, 27, 37, because somebody served, making a difference by being a servant. That's just one of 10,000 stories that could be told of how faithful service matters. Well, I don't have anything to add to that. Thank you, Jim. Thank you guys for listening. We'll be here again next week. We hope you'll join us.